Hey, it's Ronia Kabansug. I'm a producer at Stateside, and I produce the episode you're listening to today. Part of my job means hopping around the state to collect stories and bringing them back to share with you. I think my favorite project this year was one that sent me to Dearborn. The Arab American National Museum had just opened a heritage garden on their rooftop. So I got to go learn about the design and the wide variety of plants that were donated, but also about the meaning that gardening carries for so many folks in the community. I get to do this work because of your support. Head to michiganradio.org donate to make your contribution today. Thanks. Okay, on to the show. You've probably heard it all year long. This year's UAW strike was historic, unparalleled, unprecedented. I mean, those words are all true. And the strike certainly dominated this year's headlines. But there was other notable industry news that you might have missed in the shovel. Like, what exactly is selling these days? I'm truly stunned, honestly, that people are still buying these really, really expensive cars. And where producers and consumers stand with EVs. This transition was never going to be as fast as I think some people wanted it to be or thought it could be. Today, we're recapping 2023 on the automotive beat. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Kaylee Hall covers automotive for the Detroit News and joins us now. Kaylee, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, April. We've also got Mike Martinez on deck with Automotive News. Mike, good to have you as well. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) In terms of where we begin, I kind of think it's impossible to have this conversation starting with anything other than the story that gripped the state for weeks, the UAW stand-up strike across all three Detroit-based automakers. Kaylee, is it easy to sum up what reporting for such a historic event was like? It was every day. You just didn't know what you what to expect. Um, I think Mike would agree with that because we would often learn the day of or maybe the day before of when a Facebook Live would happen. But then between those things, we were also hearing from sources on the ground about how things were going and trying to stay on top of things because it's very competitive. Um, Mike's like the best in the business at this. So trying to chase him was sometimes, sometimes a lot. (laughs) I was just talking to my colleague, Brianna Noble, and I said, you know, I don't think we realize now how historic all of that was, but it will probably hit us when we get older and we look back and reflect on how crazy and intense that was as reporters. Not to mention, as we figure out what the what sort of the effect of the contract and the negotiations are for the workers and for the automakers themselves. I don't know, Mike, you've, you've been to the rodeo before, but was this one different? Yeah, I don't care how much experience you've had covering the auto industry or covering the UAW. It almost didn't matter this go around because the union ultimately really succeeded in changing the narrative and changing the way things are done. Everything from the new leadership that was elected for the first time in decades, right up to the the ramp up in the negotiations to the, the those discussions themselves. There was a completely new playbook. The strike, unprecedented, going against all three at once on that national scale. So it was a very interesting few month stretch. And then you can wind that out and say most of the year, really, because we started this year, if you remember, without a union president. There was a highly contested runoff and Sean Fain didn't even get elected until March. So it was quite a time. 
Yeah, I, I guess I hadn't thought about that, just the, the tight turnaround between the final tallies on the election and this happening. Although, admittedly, the wheels were in motion on the union having to negotiate this for some time before. Uh, both of you sort of alluded to the fact that this meant big changes and some big wins for for Sean Fain's strategy. I mean, does, can we say, though, if we just look at the conditions in, in the contract, who came out better, uh, UAW members or the Detroit Three? I don't, I'm curious to hear what both of you have to say, but Mike, do you mind going first? Sure. I think you could argue very easily that the workers gained a lot. It was historic in terms of the amount of money they received, whether it was the raises or the various bonuses or winning back a lot of the concessions that they gave up during the Great Recession. Throughout the negotiations, we heard the automakers complain that they could not afford a lot of these demands that some of what the union was asking for would essentially bankrupt them. But I'm not sure that we can say the automakers didn't come out on top here because at the end of the day, the companies have essentially said, oh yeah, we can absorb those costs easy. No big deal. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, maybe the union could have squeezed more out of them. Maybe it could have been a worse situation for the companies. But at the end of the day, if you're a worker, you cannot argue with what you won. It is not hyperbole to say these contracts are life-changing for many people, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. the newer younger workers that were not making nearly as much as some of the older workers. The bargaining table is such an uncomfortable place. I don't even know, like, talking about a successful negotiation. (laughs) Like, what does that even mean? Kaylee, we've had about a month for people to digest what's in the contract. Do you agree with any of this? Like, how? what's your sense of how workers and and the D3 are feeling about all this? Yeah, we had, um, you know, my focus is General Motors, and we had some interesting things happen with their contract, specifically uh, some of the legacy workers I spoke to were just not happy about it. I I think that they've been with the company during really difficult times, and they are the ones who had to take a lot of the setbacks, and and they feel like they kind of got left on the back burner, Um, and the newer employees get a lot more of the benefits, and they're not going to do the same exact things that they got when, when they were, you know, just a few years in at the company, so... It's a mixed bag uh, at GM, but it, it was a very close call there. Like it almost came down to, I really didn't think it was going to pass. And then it finally did. Right. There was something that that was reported a couple of weeks after uh, we got resolution on the contract that I feel like maybe deserved a little bit more attention. I wonder if either of you have heard anything about it. Ford has said it's going to reduce the scale of the mega site that it has planned for Marshall, Michigan. Either of you heard anything about the status of that site and maybe what's going on behind the scenes? Yeah, I, I can speak to that. So during the negotiations, Ford paused construction of that site. That was a big part of their early 2023 story. They trumpeted the fact that they were building this site. Governor Gretchen Whitmer was out with company officials. Even Bill Ford showed up to make this announcement, talk about how many jobs they were creating and how it would help them build cheaper batteries to reduce the costs of electric vehicles. Ultimately, they paused construction during the negotiations. And then shortly after, they announced that they would resume construction, but at a much smaller scale than they originally announced. And they gave a number of reasons why they did this, largely because the EV landscape 
has sort of changed recently in terms of cost and demand. And also their own labor costs are going up because of this UAW contract. Now, I'm not sure the contract was the sole reason. Take that out of the equation. Pretend that didn't exist. They may still have done what they did Mm. in reducing the scale of this plant. I think it speaks more so to the volatility of the EV market today and the fact that maybe the demand has not grown as quickly as Ford and some other companies had hoped or expected even earlier this year. I wonder, Kaylee, if you think about the results of the strike, I feel like we're still having this conversation about how much of the day-to-day decisions coming out of all three automakers has really to do with the contract and how much of it, like Mike said, is the big externals. But do you think the things that, that have happened over the past six months over the course of the negotiations, do you see that leading to any other big changes about how automakers are conducting business, either in Michigan or their global picture? It's hard to say because I feel like, especially at General Motors, they've been changing things throughout the year. Like we saw the, you know, the buyout program they did with the salaried workforce, and they have this new thing called Winning with Simplicity, where they're trying to reduce um, you know, the, the process of, of building cars. They're trying to look at all parts of the business to reduce costs, right? So um, I don't think that that's maybe in some way it's a response to increased labor costs, but I think it's also just overall they realize that in this transition, they it's very expensive and they need to look throughout the company and cut costs where they can, right? So um, I think that in some ways, yes, might, might, some might say, yeah, that's a result of of uh, labor costs. But as Mike was just saying, you know, the companies and they're basically saying we're doing okay. I mean, GM just did a $10 billion stock buyback program and the auto workers I talked to are uh, pretty annoyed by that. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, I think that they just have to ensure that they continue to cut unnecessary costs wherever they see possible. I wanted to ask, you two both obviously do a lot of coverage of the UAW and of the automakers, but you also you take keep an eye on the market and pe- and talk to people who are actually buying cars. What did the two of you learn in 2023 about what's selling in this moment? We're in the midst of this enormous pivot toward hybrids and EVs, and yet there are also all the day-to-day pocketbook issues related to interest rates that people are thinking about. Kaylee, what did you see? What did you see in sales? I am I'm truly stunned, honestly, that people are still buying these really really expensive cars. I don't know, maybe I just live in a different world. But um, to me, one of the shining stars for GM has been the tracks because it's at a good price point and it's it's a cute little SUV that people seem interested in. But it's not surprising to me that the trucks are still, you know, America loves its trucks. And um, the hybrid situation, you know, those sales are, are performing better than expected. Earlier this year, there was some some hate thrown at Toyota for continuing to stay on hybrids, but it looks like they're doing pretty well. And the EVs, we're still seeing a struggle there. Yeah. Mike, what about you? Yeah, I think people want products that are functional and that elicit some type of emotion from them, whether it's you know the trucks that can tow and haul if you need it, even though most mm-hmm. people who own a truck don't really use it for its intended purposes. Uh, or if it's an SUV or even a sports car, something that's fun to drive, maybe something you can take off road, those type of passion 
products really seem to do well for Ford, the company I mostly cover, as, as well as GM and others. But I, I would say all this talk about doom and gloom over slower demand than expected shouldn't erase the fact that EVs are still growing in the US. Sales are improving, just not at the rate everybody wanted. But at the end of the day, they do still make sense for at least some portion of the population. We need to take a short break. When we come back... The Fords and GMs and Volkswagens of the world are going to have to do a lot to ever try to reach what Tesla is doing today. More in a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from the University of Michigan's Go Blue Guarantee, committed to keeping a U of M undergraduate education within reach of all Michigan residents, regardless of socioeconomic status. Programs are available for all three campuses. More at goblueguarantee.umich.edu. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Have you two seen the video that's been making the rounds on socials of a Tesla Cybertruck getting stuck in a Christmas tree farm and getting towed out of the snow? No. <laughs> yeah. I confess, I laughed. <laughs> as much fun as it is to laugh, is Tesla not still first place in terms of EV sales in this country? First place by a mile. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. The other companies are struggling to catch up, and there's plenty of reasons for that. They've had a decade plus head start. A lot of the issues with EVs revolve around charging infrastructure and Tesla has had the best charging infrastructure of anybody because they invested in it themselves early and that hasn't been an issue for their customers. So the Fords and GMs and Volkswagens of the world are going to have to do a lot to ever try to reach what Tesla is doing today. How much of the reticence around EVs, I mean, there's the cost factor for sure that Kaylee mentioned, but among those who do have the means, I often wonder how much of the reticence has to do with concerns about the charging infrastructure and how much has to do with justifiable concerns about the charging infrastructure, meaning to say everybody knows that we're not where the federal government hoped we'd be right now or where the automakers hoped we'd be right now, but is it getting any better? Well, you're starting to see some signs uh, going back to Tesla. A lot of the companies are partnering with Tesla to tap into yeah. its expertise and know-how. I, I think a lot of those concerns are justifiable. This uh, network uh, patchwork, really, of third-party charging stations we have around the country is not reliable. If you go to, mm -hmm. even here in Michigan, if you go to a set of chargers, maybe there's three, four, or five, two or three aren't working half the time, yeah. or they're charging at a slower rate than they had promised. So there's a lot of real concerns out there. Yeah, that's an issue. Kaylee, do you, what do you think could push that into something that would change? Is it a matter of commercial fleets uh, being being more of a thing and, and companies having to have that reliability for their fleets, vehicles? Yeah, I mean, I really think what is starting to change that is what Mike just mentioned, which is this partnership with Tesla. I, mean, I think pretty much every automaker has said they're doing that, and that's because Tesla has had a reliable network, right? I mean, 
even last week, Mary Barad APA event mentioned how unreliable the charging infrastructure is and how that's an issue, right? So, but the thing is with EVs, I tested one for a week and I didn't charge it at all. So I think too, once people get more into them and realize the charging really, I mean, obviously it depends on, on the weather and, and this and that, but um, it's not like a, cons- a thing that you have to worry about every single day unless you're traveling very far distances every single day. I know it's foreign to a lot of people, but once you get used to it, it isn't as bad as it seems. But I understand, obviously, why it would be a hesitation for folks who, who haven't tried it. There, There's so much change happening so fast within the industry. I think it's hard to really keep keep feet on the ground in terms of how much change the industry can handle. And Kaylee, I want to ask you, and and also, Mike, I want to hear from you, too, on this, about how flexible our systems are proving right now. The doomsayers have, you know, have suggested that the the pivot to EVs is going to be uh, an existential threat to some automakers who can't make the changes fast enough. Do either of you have a sense of of how things, I guess, for lack of a better term, how it's going, given the the very uh, compressed amount of time in which these changes are happening. Kaylee? You know, it's interesting because GM, I mean, they're not they're not making any money on these CVs, right? But they did just have uh, the CFO came out last week and said the expectation is to hopefully make some money <laughs> on them, um, you know, come, come mid-decade. They've said that before and they're still kind of sticking to that. And really, you know, GM has had some issues uh, in terms of its launches with equipment supply so they've they've struggled to get out these battery modules and so they haven't been able to produce as many evs as as they expected um but they're hoping that as they work through that especially through 2024 and they build up the scale that they can actually bring in money through these ev sales but it's it's definitely going to be an interesting year for gm in 2024 to see if they're they're able to accomplish that Again, that phrase, interesting times. Yes. Mike, we, we talk about like Ford especially as being less a car maker and more uh, a manufacturing system. How do you think things are going for Ford, NGM, and Stellantis right now in terms of the EV pivot? Well, again, if you're basing it off of money, not very well at all. But the company seems pretty confident that like GM, it will start to make some decent profits on EVs in the second half of the decade. But the advantage, I guess you could say, that all three and any legacy automaker has over the Teslas and Rivians and Lucids of the world is that they do have cash cows they can fall back Mm -hmm. on. People are Mm -hmm. still buying Silverados and F-150s and Expeditions and Suburbans and a lot of very profitable gas-powered vehicles. And they have the hybrid lever that they can pull. They can boost production of hybrids as sort of a stepping stone. And presumably hybrids are at least somewhat profitable, or maybe they don't lose as much money on those as they do the EVs. So there's a path to get them to profitability. This transition was never going to be as fast as I think some people wanted it to be or thought it could be. And maybe the industry got a bit ahead of itself in some of these grand pronouncements and production goals and forecasts and and so on. But it's going to take some time. There is a path. If you're judging it today, there's some issues, there's some trouble, but presumably they can work through those. 
there's one more question that I wanted to ask you two about, and I guess we're going to enter it through the side door. GM announced this year that it's going to stop. It's it's not going to offer an interface for Apple CarPlay in its vehicles anymore. This is something that comes standard in Ford's. I think Stellantis accommodates Apple CarPlay too. The reason I bring this up is that it was the logic that was stated for this decision was that, well, we just don't think the interface works terribly well and that the outcome is that people spend more time picking up their phone. Like, you know, if, if your music stops playing mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the, the map interface stops working, you're going to dangerously pick up the phone when you're driving, which is illegal in Michigan, also new in 2023. <laughs> we just can't, we cannot be responsible for such unsafe conditions anymore. Oh, by the way, we're going to be replacing this with a paid sus- subscription service, <laughs> which in theory would, would get car makers on the hook. As automakers try to become more like software companies in this way, offering their own products maybe, uh, do we predict that this is going to be more of a thing or or will will the automakers, because they're having to deal with so many changes, have to fall back on tech giants to continue to provide them this kind of software? I can speak for GM and saying that GM is very determined to ensure that it has a future in, in, in making tech part of its business. So every time you hear Mary talk, she will talk about how they just hired Mike Abbott, who came from Apple, and Abbott's building this team of of tech people. And I just wrote a story about how they hired somebody from uh, Meta, who's going to leave their automated driving systems division. So they are trying to really build up this uh, software-defined vehicle team. And I think the reason is, is because they see it as a, a pathway to bring in profits from other things beyond just making and selling cars. So I mean, they're not wrong that depending on what what phone you have and what automobile you have, there can be real problems with the interface. But it sure seems like there's more going on behind the scenes. You know, I would make the point that I, I think this is a real danger for the auto industry to maybe not get ahead of itself, just like EV mm-hmm. demand, specifically when it comes to software-based subscriptions and things customers pay for because yes in theory that will help juice profits and help make them even more money but you really run the danger of nickel and diming the customer when vehicle prices are already going up and already at pretty high levels that price a lot of people out of certain segments and you're not going to want to get a car lease or purchase a vehicle and then have to spend another 25 bucks here hundred bucks there for things like heated seats or Apple CarPlay subscription. I think in certain instances, it can work if we're talking about security-based subscriptions or or different types of services that maybe a business might really appreciate. That is something that's, I mean, that's a selling point in the OnStar package that that GM likes to talk about as as part of its offerings, I think, right? Exactly. And for certain customers that really makes sense. But I I think the companies just need to be cautious of trying to oversaturate the market with subscriptions that people may not want to pay for. Fair enough. Okay, you two. I know that both of you are good, solid reporters and do not project your own thoughts and feelings into the stories that you are writing. But what do you think is ahead of us in 2024? Mike, you want to go first? Sure. Just off the top of my head, I'd say I think the industry's in for a a solid year. 
even this year, we were still dealing with some effects of that chip shortage that's been dogging everybody for a couple years now and a lot of supply chain hangups. And I think maybe the further we go out into next year, those issues will decrease more and more. Yeah, there's a lot of problems, a lot of potential pitfalls that we've talked about, things like vehicle affordability and production capacity being some of them. But ultimately, I I think the industry will have a a pretty solid year. Kaylee, what do you think? I'm with Mike. I think that the automakers, um, they've really been resilient through so many things. And the the suppliers and and customers, they're still shopping. I mean, the demand is still there. So um, I think it's going to be uh, another good year in 2024. And now that we're through some of these difficulties, I think it could even be hopefully kind of more of recovery than we've seen in 2023. Boy, from your lips to God's ears, Kaylee Hall covers automotive as part of the team for the Detroit News. We've also been speaking with Mike Martinez of Automotive News. Uh, You two have earned a couple of festive holiday beverages as much as anybody I can think of in 2023. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, April. Thank you. What a year. Even for those who thought they'd seen everything in the automotive industry, 2023 was a lot. We want to thank you for supporting our podcast work. We will continue delivering coverage of the electrification of the American automakers in 2024. Today's pod episode was produced by Ronia Kabansak. Other producers on the podcast are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our interns are Olivia Meradian and Laura Neon. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa, and our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. I'm April Bear, thanking you for listening and for your support of what we're doing here. We'll catch up again tomorrow. Till then, take care.